0: Excited to be here with you. If you're new, my name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your uh, teaching pastor uh, today. And so excited uh, to get to be here. I mean, we've had a blast all morning from worship to in liturgy to pre meetings, and we've just been laughing all day. It's great to have our brother back in the house. So thankful to the gangs all here, you know. And so it's just exciting to have everyone back together, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I get to put a bow on the war that we've been looking at together now for uh, the last about two months. Or so. And so we've been looking through this window into the day of the Lord or the day of judgment of the Lord, specifically pertaining to the bowls and the death and defeat uh, of the prostitute. And so that's kind of what I've got to set in. And I was talking to someone out in the hallway earlier, and they were like, finally, you like get to just give us like good news in a whole sermon. I was like, I know, it feels so good for my soul. It's like, I know we come in, and it looks easy to get up and talk about prostitutes riding dragons and wielding swords, but it's not. It's not easy, it's hard, and it's uncomfortable, and it's all the things you would imagine that keep you terrified of public speaking, as a matter of fact. And so today, uh, I would say, is the final moment of uh, the day. And so to quote, actually, David Seton from our, one of our meetings this week, he said, uh, this is the beginning of the end. And that's true. This is uh, the beginning of the end, which leads to a new beginning for us, which is beautiful. Every good story has an incredible ending. They don't leave you hanging. Cliffhangers only work for so long, and then you have to actually end the story. Today is the beginning of this uh, ending for us. And so with each week, in light of the bowls, and what we've been looking at in light of God's uh, wrath being poured out, On the prostitute and on the unrighteous, we've kind of got to see a clearer picture of God's justice and of God's wrath and of God's mercy being poured out, being withheld in some ways, but given in many ways. Uh, Each week, we've got to see God warn the unrighteous for what is coming, revealing his grace and mercy towards the unrighteous. We get to see the warning to the Christian, to the righteous, to say, hey, abstain from these things. Look out for the spirit of this prostitute. She will uh, be alluring to you. She will invite you in uh, in many different ways. And we've got to see ultimately then the Lord's willingness to stop at nothing to redeem his bride. He is literally willing to stop uh, at nothing. And so my hope uh, today is to simply put a bow on this portion of the scripture to set David up and Jeff up for uh, next week as they usher us into something uh, truly beautiful. We will not get to, I will not get to address uh, the thigh tattoo to Jesus that's in the text this week, Uh, but next week I imagine David can sum that up as it ushers us into a beautiful moment of further worship uh, together. And so the big idea is this, (laughs) the lamb makes the prostitute a bride, The lamb makes the prostitute a bride. I'm giggling and David's giggling because in our staff meeting, or in our meeting beforehand, he misheard me and he thought I said, the lamb prostitutes the bride. That's not the big idea. That is in no way, shape or form what I'm trying to say. The lamb does not prostitute the bride. The lamb makes the prostitute a bride. I told you, we've just like laughed all morning today. It's been great. The lamb makes the prostitute a bride. Three points and if you could leave them up for a minute for the note taker. Uh, the prostitute and the problem, we're going to look at the problem that the prostitute has presented that we've seen over this last few weeks. Uh, the lamb and the solution, being that the lamb is the solution, amen. And then the bride and the response, a little bit of application for you. How do we respond uh, over these last couple months? What does it look like to uh, respond? So we'll start with the prostitute and the problem. Uh, Revelation 19.1, as always, uh, when you're ready, Say ready, church. All right, here we go. Let's hit it. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. What are they saying? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying third time, amen. And can I get a what? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God. Listen to this. From the throne, church, came a voice saying, praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is an incredible moment in biblical history and time and space for us. It should be no wonder that as the text starts off, they start off singing, hallelujah, 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 right? We've been in the book of Revelation. We know that that repetition in that way, man, this is like a scene, a perfect worshipful experience that is happening here. And they're singing, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The prostitute has been defeated and the saints are singing, amen, amen, Gosh, it's an incredible moment for them. I love this because this is the final episode for this series of windows, and they're singing of the defeat of the prostitute. This is the first time that they've sung of this. They have sung hallelujah. They've sung of God's great glory and might and his righteousness and his justice at the defeat of the beast, as a matter of fact. They sang of God's attributes, and they sang of his character, but they did not sing of the defeat of the beast. And so in this final episode here, they're here and they were singing hallelujah, God has judged her, God has kept his word, God has done what God said he was going to do. It is worth singing hallelujah, amen. is it? Just for two of us. Y'all better wake up, second service, okay? Somebody ever put amen on the Facebook live or something. Put an exclamation point though so we really feel it, you know? Thank you. This time, this final time, man, they... They sing. Now, you might ask, like, why? Like, what's the big deal, Corey? What is... Sin has literally been defeated. Like, every aspect of sin has been defeated in this moment, in this window, in this series of windows that we're looking at here. This is the moment, church, that, like, all of creation has literally been crying out for. The Bible says, like, like with, like, a woman in labor pains, all of creation cries out for this moment. Like, this is that. This is that. This is that moment all of creation is longing for, the problem that the prostitute reveals is a sin problem. It's not just any problem, it is a sin problem. What does that mean? What is sin? How do we define this problem? Let me illustrate it for you and then illustrate it for you with the Bible, two illustrations. First, we'll illustrate it like this. Uh, imagine that I'm married to Andrea, because I am. For those of you who are new, my wife's name is Andrea, we've been married 13 years, and imagine I am married to her. Now, this will be harder to imagine, and sorry to put you in this position, but imagine that instead of spending my time with Andrea, I spend my time with another woman. I have intimate conversation with another woman. Uh, I'm giving over myself to another woman. I allow another woman to see me vulnerable, to see me sad, to see me happy, to see me laugh. I spend my time with another woman, right? Some of you ladies that are close to her are like, boy, I wish you <laughs> I wish you were. Let's see how that goes, right? Thank you. That's how you should respond in that moment. Let's say Andrea comes to me, rightfully so, and she says, hey, babe, it's not okay that you're spending your time with another woman. And then I look at her in a great deal of ignorance and sin, and I say, well, why not? I help pay the bills. I pick up the kids. I drop those kids off. And we're married on paper. Like, we're married. We're good. I'm not married to this woman. What would she say? What would you say? She would say, no, I don't want what you can do for me. I don't want you to just help pay the bills. I don't want you to just help pick up kids. She would say, I don't want what you can do. She would say, I want you. I want all of you. I want your intimacy. I want your emotion. I want to lay in bed with you and giggle with you and laugh and like be intimate with you. I don't want just the things that you can provide for me. I want you, right? Is that not maybe the cry that we should have in our marriages? I don't want just what you can do. I want you, is what she would say. Hopefully, that's what she would say to me in that moment. In this scenario, the message that I'm telling her is I want the best of you, but I'm not willing to give you the best of me. I want, you tracking? I want the best of you, but I'm not willing to give you the best of me. I want you to be faithful. I want. You to claim to be my, claim to be my, not just a significant other, claim to be my spouse, claim to be my wife. I want you to want to serve me and love me and be with me in that way, but I'm not willing to do that for you. So I want the best of you without giving you the best of me. And I would argue then, so it is with our relationship with Jesus. That we will claim to be in a marriage covenant with Jesus, and then we will simultaneously say, I really just want kingdom." I really just want salvation. Like, like, yeah, we're married and we're good, but I'm gonna spend all my time over here with another spiritual spouse that has captured my affections. And so we like the idea of the contractual agreement that keeps us safe, but we don't actually like the idea of giving our whole selves over unto the Lord. And whenever Jesus invites us in a relationship, he doesn't give us just a portion of himself, not just 1%, not just 99%. He literally gives us every single aspect of himself to us. That's what he gives to us, And so if, I, were to, if I, get to, I get to quote Tim Keller, Tim Keller says this, If Jesus is only a king, then sin is breaking a rule. But if Jesus is your spouse, then sin is breaking God's heart. Like if Jesus is only a king, then whenever we sin, we're just breaking the law. But if Jesus is truly our spouse, invited us into a covenant relationship, then sin is breaking the very heart of God. Not just doing something that he would disagree with. The problem that the prostitute has revealed to us over these last eight or so weeks is that sin leads us away from the heart of God. That's what sin is. Not just a set of rules to be broken. It's the reality that we walk away from the heart of God. Sin leads us then to stop seeing God as a spouse, as a covenantal relationship that has been given to us. He is covenantal in our relationship. That means that he is legally bound to us. He is spiritually bound to us. And then he must then assume the consequences for any time that legal bond or that spiritual bond is broken. Our relationship with Christ is far more than just professing faith. He has covenantally tied himself to us. The prostitute or the spirit of the prostitute leads us or lures us away from that heart and from that reality and leads us to find other spiritual spouses. This is why it's called spiritual adultery whenever someone else or something else has your heart in a way that is greater than the way Jesus has it. That's why it's called spiritual adultery, whenever something has come in and captured your mind in a way, captured your affections in a way that is greater than the way you would give your mind over, give your heart over to Jesus. It's far more than just breaking a law. Do you see that? So much more than just a contractual agreement. It is a covenant agreement. Now, let me further illustrate this for you with the Bible. Genesis is the story of creation. In Genesis 2, God created everything, and he created it good. Whenever he created Adam and Eve, he says, now it is what? Is it good or what? Very good. very good. Everything is very good. God looks at Adam, and he says, it's not okay for man to be alone. We know that. Men, you know that. A bored man is a very dangerous man, yes? It's not okay for man to be alone. And then look at this. Here's the point that it makes. Genesis two eighteen It says, then the Lord said, it's not okay that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a suitable helper. God gives a wife to Adam. God forms a covenant between Adam and Eve of which God stands at the head of that relationship. It's not not just that like Adam needed some help naming the aardvark or whatever he was naming at that time. Like he needed a suitable helper, someone to come alongside him and it would literally, not to be cheesy, literally complete him. In that moment, whenever God gives Adam a wife, it's not just to give him a wife, it's because God is Trinitarian in nature. What that means is that God has always existed in complete harmony, in complete and perfect community in and of himself. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They exist harmoniously together with one another. It turns out God doesn't need us. God didn't need Adam and Eve. He desired to have Adam and Eve reflect and bear his image. And Adam could not properly reflect the image of God apart from a suitable helper. He would not be Trinitarian. Does that make sense with you? Is that too top? Or you guys, we good? Everybody tracking with that? So in order for us to properly bear the image of God, there has to be a covenant relationship first with the Lord. In this case, then between Adam and Eve. Not that you have to be married to have a covenant relationship with God. This is within the story here. God understands and knows the relationship. Look, God does not need us to worship him. God had worship in the Trinity, has worship in the Trinity. God does not need you to serve him. God has service in the Trinity, God has literally everything that he needs in and of himself as a Trinitarian Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. C.S. Lewis talks about this and he calls it the beautiful dance. And he says that the, the Trinity is a beautiful dance where the Father is inviting the Son to the center stage and the Son is inviting the Holy Spirit to the center stage and the Holy Spirit is inviting the Father to the center stage. And there's this beautiful, glorious holy harmony that is taking place in the Trinity, where all they're doing is inviting the other one into the center, loving one another, pursuing one another, honoring the other person. How might our marriage as church look different if we had a Trinitarian mindset, if we were always ushering our significant other, our spouse, to the center stage? Might look a little different, yeah? God is a covenantal God, it's all he knows is the perfect relationship that existed within the Trinity, and God gives Adam that same covenantal relationship so Adam can experience all that God has experienced for all of eternity. Keep in mind, Adam and Eve were not supposed to die. That's not until Genesis 3, which leads us then to the problem, because you're like, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem comes in Genesis 3. This is where the problem with the prostitute enters into the Story, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. He didn't actually say that part. Lest you die. So she's all twisting her head. The prostitute, spirit of the prostitute does that. But the serpent said to the woman, listen here. You will not surely die. Now, as we've talked about the spirit of the prostitute, what have we, what have we called her? We've said she's alluring. She's seductive. This is that moment. Surely you're not going to die. will not you just come over here with me? Just come get a taste. Let's just go flirt with that tree for just a minute. And then, now let me offer you power. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that not exactly how sin enters in? We're just going to take a taste, just a little look. Surely you can touch it. My my my, you might become a god. If Jeff led you through the same call and confession as he did me in the first service, you should have this should be addressed already. What in this moment is being offered? I relationship without covenant, relationship without any form of consequence whatsoever. A relationship without any form of shared emotions. Relationship without any form of sacrifice. What the prostitute is offering Adam and Eve is that you can be married on paper, but you can live in someone else's house. That's what she's offering. There is no honoring, and there is no problem with any of that. It is no longer, though, in this case, a Trinitarian, communal, beautiful relationship relationship has been broken. This is fully one-sided. She's saying, you can be like God. You can be center stage. You don't have to give the best of yourself. You can, you can just be the best of yourself. Be your best self. You don't have to give anything up. There is no ushering in. There is no honor. There is no sacrifice. There is nothing but you in the center stage. That's what she's offering. And not only can you have center stage, but you can be like God. You can know him. You can have the best of God without giving any of yourself. That's what she's ultimately offering. This is the problem with the prostitute. And I would argue that sin is not just rebelling against God. I think that's it, but that's bottom shelf. Sin, as a Christian, is looking at someone else who is not your spouse and saying, you matter more to me than who I'm ultimately in covenant with. Sin, then, is not just simply breaking a law, breaking a rule. Sin is breaking the very heart of God. That's what happens. This is what is revealed in Revelation. It's what's revealed about the prostitute. And what's revealed is that whenever we pursue, whenever we give in, we don't just break that law because he's not just a king. But we break his heart because he's our spouse. Because he loves us so much. Now, you can say, how do you know, Corey? How do you know, Pastor? How do you know that God loves us? How do you know he's intimate? How do you know he's some helpless romantic like you're alluding to here? How do you know these things? How do you know that there's an intimacy? I'm in relationship with Jesus. I don't feel that intimacy. I don't feel that love. I don't feel that connected. So how do you how do you justify that? Where do you get that? I would say we continue in Genesis 3 and we look at what God says to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3:15. He says, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first presentation of the gospel. The way that God is going to reverse the curse of sin is by sending his son. That's how we know he's intimate. That's how we know he's romantic. That's how we know that that he cares more for us than whether or not we just keep a set of rules. Like, think about it. Like, in this moment, whenever Adam and Eve create cosmic treason against God, if he were just a king, he would have just removed them from the garden and killed them. That's not what he does. He does remove them from the garden, and they do experience death. But he doesn't do that first. What he does is this. You've rebelled. You have a spiritual spouse that you've pursued. You've committed spiritual adultery. You have sinned against me. I'm going to kill my son for you. That's intimacy, church. That is intimacy. Like, I cannot fathom. I can't even wrap my mind around saying, you've hurt me. Take Josiah. Think about it. Like, there's a level of intimacy and love and grace and mercy there that we literally cannot and not, should not even be able to, in some ways, wrap our minds around. He's not just a king that cares about you keeping a rule. He's a bridegroom that cares about capturing the affections of your heart. Like, that's what he's doing here. This is who God is. He says, from your offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That's the first presentation of the gospel. It didn't begin in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It began right here says, you sinned, you rebelled, you did this. I'm going to make it right. You deserve death. My son will receive that death. Why? Because he's covenantal. There has to be a legal consequence and a spiritual consequence for our sin. And because he's covenantal, then he has to make a way for us to remain in covenant with him. That's the heart of God, church. Like, that's what you've got to wrap your mind around, or you will never walk away from sin and disobedience and walk and fall into the arms of the one you love. If you don't see God in this light, you'll just see him as a dictator or you'll see him as some foreman. And what you'll think is, here's a foreman, I gotta show up, I gotta do the job, I gotta dress a certain way, look a, work, look a certain way, Pfft, heaven forbid, pretend to like this guy while I'm here so I can keep my job, keep getting paid. I just show up, I do the work, and I get a paycheck. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is not a foreman, he's a father, he's a bridegroom. He's all these things are intimate and alluring that are beautiful that we crave and desire the, to keep with the same scenario. It'd be like if you showed up to the job and he looked at the foreman and he said, the job's already done. And by the way, here's your paycheck and you don't have to come back. I'll just keep paying you over and over and over and over again. That's the gospel. It's not a, a, a checklist to be achieved. It's something to be experienced. It's someone to be experienced. That's the, but the prostitute reveals, man, we do not think about God like that. And so, because we don't view God in that light, we begin to search out and look after other spiritual spouses. What we're about to get into here is this the complete and total absence, church, of everything you find alluring that leads you away from the heart of Jesus. That's why they're singing. This is why it's worth singing, hallelujah, 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 the prostitute is gone. It's like singing, hallelujah, 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 everything I find enticing, everything I find seductive, everything I find alluring about the world that captivates my mind and my heart and my thoughts, all of it is finally and forever gone. Everything that's ever led me to stumble is finally and forever gone. Everything that makes me feel shame or feel some disruption in my life is finally and forever gone. Is it not? We're singing hallelujah. Could you imagine that day? It's an infathomable day, isn't it? And yet that day is the day promised to us. Yes. Second point: the Lamb then is the solution. Verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. We've heard this before, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. What are they saying? Still, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Amen and amen. The only way to move from being a prostitute to being a bride is through the lamb. It's not just a big idea, it's the gospel. The only way that we move from being a prostitute to being a bride is through the lamb of God. In this moment, man, God has made the prostitutes brides. God has made everyone who's ever committed any form of spiritual adultery against him, yet genuinely professed faith in his saving grace and his saving work, spotless. That's what's happening here in this moment. All of those who have ever walked in opposition or walked away from the heart of God, broke the heart of God, in this moment, he only sees them as righteous. He only sees them as perfect. He only sees them as the way he truly intended and designed us to be in the perfect imago day, the perfect image. Of God for the marriage of the Lamb has come, church. I need you to know the heart of God here. I need you to know it. That in this room there's a great deal of women and men alike that don't feel disconnected, I understand. They feel disengaged, they feel a little lost, feel as if God doesn't listen, that God is not present, that God is abandoned, while professing faith in that God. That would be a really bad spouse. That's a picture of someone you don't want to marry, by the way. This is not the heart of God to leave you hanging, to leave you in suffering. It's not the heart of God to only be present whenever you experience some form of celebration in your life. I need you to know his heart is this. Every single millisecond from the moment he promised his son in the garden to this moment when it actually happens, he is ushering all of creation that direction. Every single way. Though some are going to bend the knee and some are not. We've learned that in the book of Revelation. But every single millisecond of your suffering and every single millisecond of your celebration has been sowed in you to long for this day. That's the point of the marriage of the Lamb. Every single aspect of it, everything that we've seen in Revelation has been wrestling with what is celebratory in the righteous and mourning the unrighteous, has it not? And so it is in our lives. Every single millisecond of everything you could ever experience has been sowed for this moment. This is the marriage church that every other marriage points to. This is the fairy tale moment that every cheesy Disney film points us to. Like this is the most incredible, one of the most incredible moments in all of human history. This is beautiful. This is, the table has fully and completely been set for you on every single level. And I would say, Jesus can do no more. He has done everything. That sounds like a good wedding to go to, yeah? hmm that's right. Here's what Jesus is saying. In order for you to get the best, in order for me to get the best of you, I have to give you the very best of me. It's the opposite of every other relationship in your life. He's saying, for me to truly, for me, Jesus, to truly get the absolute best out of you, I have got to surrender and give you the best of everything I have. The table has been set here. He has given you the absolute best that he can give you. The lamb ushers you to the center stage. The lamb is the one inviting you in. The lamb has paid the way. The lamb draws the best out of us so we can present ourselves to him, and then, and this is the heart that I want you to hear. And then, like, he goes, "This like, here, like gosh, this is angst to me." Lord, help me to be clear here. Jesus could have just saved you, and it would have been enough. I like, could have saved you and said, "See you in the kingdom." He could have said, "Hey, we're married on paper, but I'm gonna hang out in this house over here." It's not what he does. Like, it's not what he does. He says, no, I'm going to live a life you can't live. I'm going to die a death that you deserve to die, by the way. I'm going to resurrect a new life. And then here, then I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's why he he sends us the Holy Spirit, because it seals us in covenant relationship with him. He doesn't send us the Holy Spirit so we can over-exalt the Holy Spirit and run around shaking banners, mumbling to ourselves as as a congregation, so we can idolize the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit because it seals us in Christ forevermore. Like there is no, once you're in the faith, you don't get out of the, you don't just, people don't just choose to walk away from the faith. Call that deconstruction, and people will try to say that that's them. Once you're in, you are sealed. And look at me and tell me you're more powerful than the grace that saved you. You ain't walking away from that. And so in this, this is what he says, he sends the Holy Spirit, it, seals us in covenant. He didn't have to do that. And yet in sealing us by the power of the Holy Spirit in himself, he's inviting us into the Trinitarian community that he's known forevermore. We get to experience that level of community with the Lord. We have a portion of that spirit in us, you and me. That's what it looks like. He did not have to do that. He could have just saved you and said, see ya. Either when you come home or I come back. I'll see you when I see you. That's not what he says. He doesn't leave us. He seals us in him. He gives you literally his whole entire self. Every single aspect of Jesus that could be given to you has been given over. That's why I say he can do no more. I'm not saying he can't grow you further in Christ or do more for you in your relationship. I'm saying spiritually speaking, he's done everything. The table has been set. You've been clothed in the finest of lemons. You've been in linen, not lemons, You've been clothed in the finest of linens. You've been given the family crest. He's recreated your identity. He's given you a new name. He's literally done everything to get happen. This is the marriage supper of the lamb, and that's the gospel. There's nothing that you can do. You just simply show up, and it's set for you. Check this out, verse seven. It gets even better. And his bride has made ready herself. We'll illustrate this in a second. And his bride has made ready, made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. That's us, church. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And we'll come back and finish in a minute. Look, what this is not saying is you have to clothe yourself righteous. What it's not saying is you have to put on a facade and act a certain way. And once you kind of have done enough, then the Father will look at you and invite you into this meal, right? What it is saying is that you have been given the finest of linens. You've been given the finest of clothes, and now you get to respond to that. The table has been set. The invitation has been given. His bride, the church, has made herself ready. She's simply responding to the gospel. She's responding to what has already been done. She's responding to what has already been given to her. She's responding to this moment. It was granted to her, given over to her, and now she responds. Let me illustrate it like this. I mean, I've mean, i had the incredible privilege to officiate many of your weddings. Uh, Lord willing, I'll get to officiate many more. When you think about a wedding ceremony, there's an invitation that comes first. Right, you don't just dress kind of hoping you're going to get invited to a wedding. That'd be super weird. <laughs> Today's the day, just waiting on that. It's just not going to happen, right? You, you dress because you have been invited into the wedding. And whenever you show up to a wedding, man, everything is done for you. If it's not done for you, that's a really, that's a really interesting scenario too, yeah? Like they're ill-prepared. But when you show up, you, man, you're there and you see it and it's beautiful and the, the church building or the hall has been decorated a certain way and the, the centerpieces are out and the flowers are put out perfectly and the gift thing. Set, like if you just see it, you know, you see it in your head. You get invited to something that has already been prepared for you. It's done. You don't go up to a wedding expecting to help unless you're a part of the wedding party. Right? What happens? You get an invitation, and then you start thinking. You go, man, they are getting married. Well, what's that going to look like? What's it going to be like? And then what do you do? Whenever you, the day comes as the person who's been invited, then you do what? Well, then you start to get ready, Right. And you're like, okay, I've been invited to this thing, and now I'm going to get ready. Now I'm going to ready myself. To use the scripture here, the wedding has been granted to me, and now I get to properly prepare myself for that time. I'm going to enter into this wedding. You literally dress yourself for something that's already been provided. Does that make sense? That's what this... Text here means the church has been pressed, the dresses the attire has been brought at bought everything has been done, the table has been set, the invitation is at hand. righteousness has already been given to us we 're just dressing ourselves in it. what does that mean it means we 're just responding to the gospel we 're not cleaning ourselves up so that we might get the invitation. The invitation has come, and so then you respond to that invitation i 'll say it again, you get yourself ready for what has already been given. To you, using what has already been given to you. And so we've been here in this scenario. Think about you get, you ladies, especially, let me me level with you ladies here for just a minute. How many times you get invited to a wedding, like, I don't have anything to wear? And your husband's like, Bro, you got 45 pairs of shoes and 17 dresses. You're like, TJ Maxx, I gotta get to TJ Maxx. I don't know, I don't have anything to wear, right? We come to this, we are like, I don't have anything to wear. I'm unworthy. I'm not this, I'm not that. And the beauty of this wedding is this: the bridegroom comes down and he says, "You don't have to worry about it. I'm going to dress you with my linens. I'm going to literally give you my righteousness." The overarching difference between this wedding and literally every other wedding is that whenever you show up to a wedding and you know this to be true, I love this moment when I get to officiate. I'm standing with some like blubbering soon-to-be husband right here, right, and he should be. No one looks at the husband and goes, "Oh, great tux. It's black." cool but everyone looks at the wife the soon-to-be wife when the doors open don't they what do you do when the doors open you stand up what are you doing in that moment you're inviting her to center stage this moment is for you this is your moment everyone walks there's honor there she looks beautiful dressed in righteousness dressed in white absolutely gorgeous right the difference between every wedding that you've been invited to attend and this wedding right here is that the same doors will open in and you're gonna walk in and all of creation is gonna look at you as the bride of Christ. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's incredible. Everything that wants to find you while you were here and made you think you were less than God the way he sees you will simply cease to exist. That's what's that's what's coming right? Doors are going to swing wide open. You're going to expect to see all these things, and people are going to stand up, and they're just going to dote on you. Not because of anything that we've done, simply because of the grace we've received in the gospel. You've been clothed. The table has been set for you. Everything has been done for you. There's literally nothing else to do. He has literally done everything that he can do the marriage supper of the lamb is this: Every millisecond of creation has been ushered in and pointing towards this moment. Is it no wonder that they're singing? "Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah! The prostitute is finally defeated. The beasts are finally defeated. Everything that ever took me away from that is finally, it ceases to exist. Everything that took me away from the heart of that. It's no longer there. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jesus. no wonder John falls on his face again. Think about what he sees. Verse nine, and the angel said to me. Verse nine, and the angel said to me, "Write this. Blessed are those who invite, who are invited to the marriage supper of Lamb. That's us, church. When you read that, you should go. Yes, the invitation has been sent. I have it now. I'm going to respond. And he said to me, to John, "These are the true words of God." And then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. It's just so funny. But he said to me, you must not do that. He's like, bro, you can't do that in here. We're, we're past that window. We're done with that, okay? You're gonna get us both kicked out of the wedding, okay? <laughs> you must not do that, exclamation point. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is the testimony? What is the spirit of prophecy? The lamb turns prostitutes into brides. That is the gospel. There is nothing that we bring. It is by grace and grace alone that we are saved in Christ. His life becomes our life. His death, our death, his resurrection, mine and your resurrection. His ascension and glory in the kingdom of God will become your ascension and your glory in the kingdom of God forevermore. That's what's offered to us. Show me somebody that'll give you something better than that. His heart has always been to redeem his people. He he doesn't do this to put you center stage so you get exalted. It's God. He does it to reveal how much he's willing to, pardon me, how much he's willing to endure to move heaven and earth to redeem you. That is intimacy. That's relationship. That's covenant faithfulness like we cannot wrap our minds around. So you would ask maybe, how do I respond? What do I do? That's incredible. That's awesome. It's all the things. I'm feeling all the feels. Now what do I do? We don't want to just be emotional. We want to actually respond. And so the bride and the response, third point. There's a few points underneath here, but the bride and the response. Here's a few things about the covenant of marriage pertaining to Jesus, first and foremost, and then use it to pertain to yourself. But listen here. You don't fix your marriage with your earthly spouse in hopes that it'll fix your marriage with your kingdom spouse. You get your relationship with Jesus in order. You pursue him, set at his feet, look at his face, and everything else will work itself out in one way or another to his glory, all right? First point, marriage is legal. Here's how I respond. Marriage is legal. There's a legal process to marriage. That's part of the covenant, biblically speaking. There are actually things that have to happen for you to be married, and some people will say, well, pastor, we're married in our hearts or we've been together for 10, 15, 20 years. There's really no need to get married. We're basically married. I would say you're right. You're basically married, but you're not. You're still not that thing, which means if you're continuing to do all the things you would do, you're living in sin. Biblically speaking, there's always a legal element to marriage. And so if someone comes and says, well, I don't need to get the law involved. I don't need to get the state involved. I don't really care for Illinois that much Anyone Think thinking about moving to Missouri as it is. Like, it." It doesn't matter what you think or what you feel. You don't get to just kind of pluck it out and go, well, here's how I feel about it. Like our culture does that all the time. We're just gonna pluck some truths, okay? That's not true. It's not a truth. Right there's a biblical spiritual element. There are seven things that make up a covenant, and every single covenant in the Bible, one of them is legally binding. This is why things take place in the gates with the elders. It's a legal courtroom that covenants are taking place all throughout the Scripture. Whenever someone looks at you and says, "Well, we don't have to be married. We can just do all the things that married people do. I don't have to give myself over to you," what are they saying? They're saying, "I want the absolute best of you, but I'm not willing to give you the best of me." That's what they're saying. In that moment. So when you become married legally, what's real life, when you become married legally, what's mine is yours and what's yours is also what? Mine. mine the one, one woman said, yeah. mine. That's right. That's right. She knows, right? What's yours is mine and what's mine is yours, legally speaking. And so it is with Jesus in the gospel church. We are sinners. Jesus is righteous. Jesus has to go to the cross. Why? So he can legally take our sin and put it upon himself, and he can legally give us his righteousness. There has to be a legal consequence for sin. According to covenant, this is why Jesus dies. It's not like, oh, I just profess je- faith in Jesus and one day I get to go to the kingdom. No, there's a, there's a whole thing that's working itself out here that's pointing to the marriage supper. Jesus has to literally, legally take the death penalty that you and I deserve so we can remain in covenant with him. There's a, there's a whole process there. It's far more than just something spiritual, spiritually aloof that we believe in. There's a real reality that is here. So how do we respond? I would say this, rest in the, je- the death of Jesus genuinely, to take your sin to the cross of Christ and just leave it there and say, this is what you died for, to present me spotless? Father, help me to not hold on to that anymore. The things that bring you shame, the things that bring you insecurity, the things that aim to rob you of your identity as a husband, wife, spouse, mom, dad, stepmom, stepdad, single, whatever it is, you simply take and you say, these things are not going to claim hold on me. I'm not experiencing shame anymore for this. Father, would you please take this away? I'm tired of killing myself again and again. And again, Jesus literally died for you, church. So you could present you spotless. How do you respond? Rest in that truth. Marriage is spiritual, second thing. Marriage is spiritual. There's an element to marriage that requires faith. Now, you can be in the room, not as a Christian. You say, well, I'm in the room. I'm not a Christian. Well, you're also not ignorant, which means you have to have some level of faith, You would not want me to say, well, it's ignorant. Let's just just call it ignorance. You're like, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, it's my first day. Don't call me ignorant. You don't know me. I don't, and I wouldn't. So you have to have some level of faith. Driving here on the way here, we all had faith that someone was not going to do a head-on collision with us on the way, yeah? That's faith at the end of the day, right? As those who are married, you have faith that your spouse is going to wake up. Otherwise, you'd be ridden with anxiety all night. You have faith that they're going to come home, that they're not going to just say they're married to you, then give themselves over to someone else, like my illustration earlier. You have faith, and so it is with Christianity and Jesus. Christianity requires faith, not a level of perfection. It does not require a bunch of degrees. It doesn't require you have everything figured out. It does require what? Faith. Faith. It requires a level of faith that God is going to control the things that you cannot. For those of you that are type A in the room, it's very difficult for you and yet it requires faith, faith in the grace and mercy of the gospel, faith that Jesus is enough to sustain you, faith that Jesus is going to be the best spouse whenever your spouse kind of sucks, and sometimes we do, yes? It's spiritual in that you must profess faith in what you cannot control. I would argue you profess faith every day. How do I respond as the bride? You profess faith in Jesus in his work in your place as your substitute. Marriage requires contact, third thing, Uh, To quote the Apostle James, I'm going to make sure I say this. I misspoke in the last service. So to quote the Apostle James, faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. Okay. Faith and faith alone. I said grace and grace alone. I misspoke earlier. Faith and faith alone does not save you. We profess faith in all sorts of things. That's what the prostitute revealed in her problem. Also, works and works alone do not save you. So you have to have both. You have to have both faith and also Works. You need to have them both. If marriage is only marriage on paper, it's a contract. It's not a covenant. It's more than just legal. You have to actually respond. You have to move forward. You have to do something different. Marriage requires you to pursue and to seek out your spouse. It's more than going to work. It's more than helping with bills. It's more than picking up kids. It's literally giving yourself over to someone. There is nothing, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there is nothing more exposing than marriage. You want to be known? You're known, aren't you? Good, bad, ugly, warts and all. They know about it. They've seen it, right? Seen some things they can't unsee, if we're getting honest, right? (laughs) So it is with Jesus, right? He's the only one that looks at you and truly knows you and says, I do. I mean, knows you. Can't hide anything from him. So you have to respond to him. Marriage requires contact. You have to physically go do something? How do you respond? I would say reading God's Word, stepping into missional community, spending time in prayer, serving the church. Like, think about this for just a second. Why why do you think we do these things? Like, Sunday's biblical, yes. Well, why do we do a Sunday gathering? Why do we do missional community? Why do we do HC Institute? This is why I said earlier, maybe we need to expand this registration, expand the registration. Why do we do that? Why do we do DNA? It's not because you need a, we don't do programs. It's not because we're trying to invite you to a program. We're trying to invite you to make contact with the Lord. Marriage requires contact. It requires you to push forward. It requires you to move closer, right? We spend the majority of our time not doing those things. And so we've said as pastors, it's our responsibility to invite you into playgrounds to be able to play where you can actually make Contact and walk out spiritual disciplines. To quote Matt Chandler this, this last week, he said, there isn't something crazy big outside of the church that's going to come into the church and kill your family, but soccer might. Right? Like, my, my daughter doesn't need another day of tumbling. My son doesn't need another day to go to jujitsu. But they do need to see, both of them, all four of them now, need to see myself and Andrea wrestling with the gospel. Like praying together, reading scripture together, being in Christian community together, repenting to one another. Hey, babe, I'm sorry that my affections have been going somewhere else. I'm sorry that I've not brought you into my life in a way that I should. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's what they need to see. Yeah, they don't need someone else blowing a whistle at them. You get what I'm saying? It's not something, here's what, he, what, or what Chandler's saying in that regard. Here's what I'm saying. There's not someone big and crazy, nasty, beast-type figure that's going to come into your family and kill your family. But complacency might. A failure to make contact might. Caring more about your comfort and your family's comfort and the way you appeal and look to other people might. But what won't is being on your knees in the evenings as a family, pouring your heart out to the Father spending time together in the Word, pursuing Christian community, buying a bag of frozen nuggets because it's all you can provide for that night for your MC. But letting your family, letting your kids see you wrestle to just get and make some contact. Complacency might kill you, but it definitely won't be spiritual disciplines. One of the commentators I read this week on this point here said, if you want to know if you're marked by the spirit of the prostitute, look at how you spend your solitude. How do you spend your free time? The majority of us would have to burn our phones, yeah. <clears throat> marriage is intimate. Last point. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand with me and the team can come up and I'll close us out here? Man, the marriage is intimate. The one thing about marriage is that, as mentioned earlier, it requires you to give your whole entire self, right? If your spouse came up to you and said, hey, I've been 99.9% faithful, you wouldn't say good job. You'd say, let's talk about that 0.1. Tell me about that 0.1%. What does that mean to not be faithful in that way? There's nothing more intimate. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more gracious, more merciful than being in relationship with Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, he's the only one church that looks at us, sees us for everything that we are, and then still says, I do. And when we went through the Less We Turn series, this came to mind last service, we, we processed through that a lot. Kind of the same illustration was in light of a wedding. What spiritual adultery really is, is, you, is Jesus shows up to a wedding with you, but you're down at the end of the aisle committing adultery on the altar. That's what spiritual adultery is. And the beauty of the gospel isn't that Jesus hightails it out of the church that day, but rather he goes, I knew this is how this was going to go. And then he walks down the aisle and he takes you by the hand and he lifts you off the, altar, off the altar and he says, regardless of everything that I've seen and regardless of everything I've heard and everything that you've committed, I still do. I'm in. I'm 100% in. My life is your life. My death, your death. My resurrection, your resurrection. My spirit is your spirit. There is nothing more intimate and vulnerable than that. That that's the God that we serve. I don't know another person in my life that loves like that. Shows mercy like that. Shows grace like that. So whenever he calls us brides, what he's saying is this, you have all of me that I could ever offer you spiritually. I can literally not do anything else for you. Again, not saying he can't grow you, not saying he can't redeem some things. What I'm saying is this, he's done everything, church. We simply need to respond to it. The invitations are on the table. The tables have been set. The linens have been given. If you don't know what to give, he says, that's okay. I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. In the midst of your adultery, I'm going to give you my righteousness. And then he does. Communion is a beautiful reminder and picture that. We take communion together every week as saints before you start to open them up. Let me remind you that communion is literally the foreshadowing of this moment in time. This is why we want communion to be the climactic point of every Sunday. This is the moment. This is also why we encourage you then to confess and to repent because you get to come to this father who we commit to or we have other spiritual spouses with, and we get to look at him and we get to go, God, you're right. I I have so many other loves in my life. I've not fallen into your arms. I've not found you alluring and beautiful and satisfying. God, forgive me for for what I've done. And then we get the reminded of, oh, yes, <laughs> I'm already sitting at the table. He's done everything. And so as you get to take the bread and the cup, the bread representing Christ's body broken for you, the cup representing his blood being spilt for you is a reminder. Everything that requires redemption is finished. You simply need to take it to him and respond. For those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. The table's open.